0: Part of living a fallen world is that we have to deal with a lot of problems, lots and lots of problems. Nobody in this world anywhere uh, really lives what we could honestly say is a completely problem-free life. Uh, If you go to anywhere in the world, any person of any country in the world, and you ask them uh, what the greatest problems they face in life are, they're going to almost instantaneously be able to give you a list. Now, that list is going to be different from one place to another, from one person to another. If you ask for that list from somebody who lives in an impoverished third world country, they're probably going to say things like, hey, look, some of our greatest problems is having enough food, having enough water, having enough medicine just to be able to sustain life. And as you know, as I do, is those are real, real problems. Then you can ask somebody from a country like ours, a first world country, a prosperous country, and those list of needs or problems are going to be much, much different. In fact, Americans seem to have no shame of airing their first uh, world problems over social media. Let me read a couple of them for you if I will. Number one, dear Carnival Cruise Lines. (laughs) Already we understand this is going to be a much different list. And says he says here he says seriously no Wi-Fi, uh, you are now dead to me. All right, so that's one. Number two, I just had my praline cream. Not sure what that is, but confiscated by TSA in Dallas. As far as I'm concerned, the terrorists have now won. <laughs> Number three, I just got back on a boring trip. My dad made me go on the, for spring break. I said to him, Dad. Like, I've been to the Bahamas like a billion times before. Can't we go to Mexico this year? He simply said no and made me go on the cruise anyway. Totally rude. That's the, that's the text on social media. So as you can tell, these are huge first world problems, yes? And uh, th- there's, a, there's an inherent danger, I think, of living in the first world in a prosperous country like our own. I think number one is there is a danger of having an ungrateful heart. Sometimes we can begin to focus on such small little problems that really, as well as you know, that they're not even real problems at all. Really, they're better to be described as more as inconveniences, and yet we find ourselves complaining about those rather than rejoicing in the abundance of blessings that we have. I think another inherent danger, in apparent danger, is for us to be so blessed that we can be lulled into thinking that we don't struggle with humanity's greatest problems. Sometimes we're actually actually blinded that humanity has major problems in this world. And I praise God that we have such a good and gracious God that he loves us enough, that in his grace and his mercy, he loves us enough to reveal those difficulties, those problems to us. So this morning in the beginning of chapter 7, this is what we want to look at. We want to look at two of humanity's greatest problems. Then we want to look at God's solution to those problems. So two problems, then the solution. Number one, number one problem, death. Aren't you glad when a sermon starts off with that? It just makes you feel so good and warm inside. Well, let's look at it. Let's see what the text says. Verse one, we read, after he had finished all he was saying in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, just in context, understand, we've been going through for the last several weeks, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus preaching the sermon on the plain, and uh, we've been unpacking those truths. And now he's come to the end of that sermon, and now he's moved into Capernaum. And he says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And so, really, Luke begins this story by identifying a desperate need of a man. This man is a servant, uh, of a roman centurion and he tells us two specific things about this man number one that he's very sick he's very sick he luke who is actually a physician by trade doesn't actually give us uh, the diagnosis of what's wrong with him specifically we don't know what ailment he's suffering from but he does give us the prognosis and it's not good he says that he was sick and to the point of death So even for those who were not doctors, those who were around him, even his own master understood that things were not good and that this man soon was going to face death if something radically didn't take place in his life. So he was very sick, but fortunately for this man, he was also very loved. Luke tells us here that he was highly valued by his master, highly valued by the the, um, centurion. And and here, that word in the Greek can literally mean either, it could either mean useful or it can also mean precious. And I think that really the context tells us he means the latter, that really the servant was precious in the sight of his master, that this man had a genuine love for his servant and he cared for them and wanted to take care of him. And this would have been really different than the norm during the first century, Uh, You may know this or you may not know this. If you don't know a whole lot about early Jewish history in the first century, you need to know that the Jewish people did not like uh, the Romans, and the Romans did not like the Jewish people. The feeling was mutual. But they especially hated men like this, that is the centurion. They hated him. And here what we understand is that this centurion is showing love to this man. We don't know if he was a Jew or not, but he is loving to his servants. During this particular time, uh, really, again, unusual for him to feel these things for a servant, because servants were looked as nothing more as property. Uh, Honestly, one particular um, first century master said of his servants that they are no different than animals other than they can talk. And so, normally, they would be mistreated. They even mistreated them not only physically, but even sexually abused those servants. And so this was very unusual that this man would have a soft, tender heart to truly, honestly care for his servant before him. But what this centurion now finds is he can't do anything about the problem this man is facing. This man is facing death. And we know that, that this, servant, this master would have done everything that he could because of his love for him, everything in his power, everything in his wealth. He would have gotten every doctor that he could, the best medical care for him. But now he's finding out that this problem of death is too big for him to fix. I got a feeling that the majority of us have come to that point somewhere in our lives with people that we cherish people that are precious to us, friends that are, are, are precious to us. They, they fall into different difficulties. We wanna rescue them out. Their marriage is beginning to fall apart. We, we go to them, we try to counsel them, we try to help them. But no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what, what we provide, their marriage ends up in divorce. Or maybe there's somebody that we know that has gotten themselves in terrible debt Maybe it was their fault, maybe it wasn't, but we don't want them to be in there, so financially we begin to sacrifice as much as we can to try to pull them out of that, to get them out of that debt, but the debt was just too great. And when you really love somebody in this way and you see them in that particular condition, it's moments like that that you begin to realize what really, truly being powerless is. Because you would do anything for them, you would help them in any way you can, but it doesn't matter, you don't have the means to rescue them. And where I think that ultimately where we find ourselves this, and this becomes more evident than any other place, is really when our loved ones become sick. And you know when they become sick, everything else begins to fade away, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, this is the only thing important in life. And you and I want to do everything to be able to help them. And they go to get medical care, and we try to get the best medical care that we can, and we try to to, to make sure that they're okay. But one day, and this has happened to me on more than one occasion, I hope it never happens to you, that all of a sudden the doctors come in when things are really going south and they say these words, there's nothing left that we can do. And when they say that, all of a sudden those things that you thought were impossible, the debt, the divorce, all the things, those things that you thought were impossible to be able to help and to be able to cure and to be able to rescue people from seem, seem infinitely more possible than this issue of death and somebody who is ultimately dying that you love before you. But yet, that is the reality for every single one of us. We can escape these other things, but we cannot escape death. It's a reality for everyone who is here today. Now, young people don't usually think of, if we ask young people, what's been on your mind, it's usually not death. That's not usually on their mind. They're usually like school, new car, good grades, whatever it is. And 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 it's hard for them to think about death at all, because all they can do is see the whole life ahead of them. It's hard for middle-aged people, and I consider myself a middle-aged people, even though that's probably not true, because I'm coming up on 50. Doubtful I'll make 100, but I just call myself middle-aged because it sounds better. And so for the rest of you so-called middle-aged people, the reason we don't is because sometimes we don't think about death because we feel like we're in the best, the prime of our life. We think it can't get any better than this. The truth is it's really only when we begin to become older, we become, to be, become very, very sick, that we even think or even have thoughts of a possibly dying. And yet it's interesting because, because the reality is or the truth is that a newborn baby only minutes old, uh, that death is as much a reality for that child than a person who is in their 90s. The only difference is time. How much time you have, but yet all will one day face death. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 or 9 in verse 27, it says, and just as it is appointed man once to die, it's appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. One day, all of us, I don't know when. Today? Tomorrow? Next week? A month? A year? A decade? Three decades? Don't know? But one thing that is sure, one thing that is certain is your body is going to fall apart. You, your life is going to be no more. And you're either instantly going to be in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ, or you're going to be separated from God and eternal suffering in hell. Some people sometimes will say, you know, I really want a preacher, a preacher that will preach it, it, be real. Well, it doesn't get any more real than that. Really want a pastor who's going to tell it like it is. Well, there it is. That's it. There it is. That's the reality. And, and, and let's be honest with you. We don't want to really hear it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Nobody, I guarantee you, Here here's a bet, and I don't, I'm not a betting man, but I, 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 got a, I, I got a feeling that nobody woke up out of bed. I can't wait to get to the Church of God, and I hope we hear a really good death sermon by Pastor Mike this morning because everyone loves the old death sermon. It's one of my favorites. And for me, it's not something that I really in particular thought about even preaching but only because it's in the text of scripture. So it may not be on your mind, may not be on my mind, but what we see in the text is it's on God's mind because God understands that this is one of our greatest problems that we face and you and I don't have a way to fix it. We don't have a way to fix it. The truth is many of us have probably thought more about death in the last year than in our entire lives, haven't we? Because of COVID. Some are still thinking about it. Some are still nervous about it the COVID and what's going on. And I completely understand that. When it first started coming out, do you remember news from China? It seemed like everybody who got it was dying by the masses. And the media began to tell us that this is going to be the worst plague humanity has ever seen. And so we everybody began to prepare, spent unbelievable amounts of money on masks and hand sanitizer and everything else. And you and I were willing to do what we didn't want to do. And this sounds bad, but that means stay home with our families all the time. <laughs> It's not the way it made it, uh, yeah, it's bad, that's not what it meant, but just being there locked up is not what we wanted, it wasn't the family, but you get what I'm saying, and, and that was terrifying, but we were willing to do it, not go to work, even possibly be docked paid, uh, and, and kind of go nuts, because you're all bound within this house. Why? That's how great fear is. And that reality, it became more of a reality when people that we love, even from our own church, passed away. They got COVID and they, they died. Some, they didn't even know they had it. Other people got it and they died. So it's so weird about this thing. And then even if somebody didn't pass away, it's still at the forefront of your minds. If you got COVID, I guaranteed you did the same thing. I got a very mild case of COVID. And, and when I got it, there was just one day where I was like, <clears throat> and I looked at my wife and I go, hey, that's, that, that's gotta be bad, right? That's bad. And you all of a sudden, the reality of death begins to come over you, and you realize for the first time, this is real. And guess what? There's nothing I can do about it. And when you don't, there's one person that you go to in the midst of it who is Christ. Jesus, I need your help. And this is what happens with the centurion. When the centurion is here and he comes and he realizes that he can't do anything about this problem of, of, of death for his servant, he goes to Jesus. Actually, he doesn't go. We're going to find out why he doesn't go. Instead, what he does is he sends a contingent of Jewish elders to go to Jesus to speak on his behalf. And here's what he asks them. He asked them in the scriptures, he says, he was asking him to come and to heal his servant. The word heal in the Greek is so significant because it comes from a group of words for salvation, which literally means to carry someone safely through dangerous ordeal. The greatest problem we have is death. The greatest need we have is for someone to carry us through the dangerous ordeal. Not only physical death, but spiritual death as well and only Jesus Christ can provide it. So number one, death. Second problem, pride. Verse four, look at this. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Again, that the fact that the Jewish leaders would at this point come and plead with Jesus on behalf of this, this Roman official, and plead for him, I mean, it's, it, it literally is unprecedented. Again, no love between these two, but yet there's an appreciation for this particular centurion. And, and they give the reason why is because they say that, look, he, he is worthy, then they give the list of why he's worthy. He's worthy of Jesus' help, why? Because he loves our nation, that is that he loves the Jewish people. And number two, that he has built us our synagogue. You know, we have our own list of what we determine to be good people, right? Right? And from not from a biblical perspective, but a worldly perspective, if we see somebody like him with the characteristics that he has, here's a loving, compassionate man that cares for other people, cares for employees. That's a sign of a good man. He's 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 patriotic. He serves in the military. Thank you so much, sir, for your service. Right? People are saying that to him because he's he's serving. Uh, we understand that he's generous. Uh, interesting note is we don't know how he made this, uh, what he did to be able to bring about this, um, this place of worship for them. In fact, it, it could have been that he supplied the soldiers to be able to build it or the cash to be able to uh, build it, or he could have given both at the same time. We just don't know. But interesting thing, when you go to Capernaum today, the foundation of that very synagogue that he paid for is actually still existing. You can go and visit it today. So this man, this is how they're thinking. This man is good. Now, remember, they're Jewish people. What do they think? They think in terms of human merit, that you get what you deserve. Bad person, you're going to get bad. Good person, you're going to get good. Here's what he's saying to Jesus. You and we owe it to this man because of his own goodness. Do you see where he's going here? So as they're saying, you've got no other choice. He's been good, therefore, you've been good. And here's the mistake that they're making. Here's the problem. The problem is pride. Human pride, it's deadly. See, pride always thinks in terms of human merit. Again, it's always basically saying, hey, look, if the, good is, if the person is good, then they can expect good. And that is a, much of what people think when it comes to the life hereafter. Many people believe that if they're good in this life, you, you've heard it, you know it. Some of you are even thinking of it. Hey, are you prepared for the future? Yeah, why? I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. I'm a good woman. Well, what, how do you, well, then you say, well, are you perfect? No, I'm not perfect. I, I'm, I'm good, though. I've done a lot of good things. Here's the things, and then they begin to list. They can they have a list just like this guy. And the problem is with that is what they begin to do is when you begin to think of merit and begin to think that you're good, then you begin to feel as though you're entitled and you can even demand goodness from other people. Now, we see this in relationships, probably not your relationship, certainly not my relationship, but I assume that some husband has said to his wife at some particular point, I did this, the least you can do is this for me. Or they ultimately say, All that I've done for you, and this is the thanks that I get. What is that? That's all merit based relationship. And it's really pride in disguise, disguised as goodness. It's pride saying, Look, How good I have been. Look at this. My goodness is on display for all to see. Certainly I deserve the best. I'm going to let you know, if that's the way you function within your relationship, it's probably not a very good solid relationship. And what is troublesome for our earthly relationships is ultimately devastating for our relationship with our Heavenly Father. I've known folks throughout ministry, and it's heartbreaking. You probably have too. You've seen people who seem to be the real deal. They're following after God, they're a part of his church, they serve, they give, they even teach, teach the truths of God. They do all of these things, and then one day they just fall away from the faith. They fall away, and they're nowhere to be able to be found, and you're, you're figuring out what's going on. In this one particular case for this one particular gentleman, it was because of heartache, he was serving, he was going, he was doing, and, 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 but yet there was a tragedy in his life. He lost one of his loved ones and he had prayed to God, God, please heal this loved one. I'm begging you to heal this loved one. Please do this for me. And God didn't heal him. And that person that he loved passed away and then, and then he just fell out and fell away. And when I began to go and talk with him, he just sat there and he says, God disappointed me. God is a giant disappointment. I worked for him. I did good things for him. I taught class. I, I stopped doing sinful things. I gave up the things of the world. I gave money. I served. You know you were there. And this is the way that God responds to me of how good. He, he should have been good to me. And that what they're ultimately saying is that God disappointed them. And what I have to say to them in love is, God didn't disappoint you. Your bad theology is what disappointed you. This isn't how God works. He doesn't work with us based on human merit. If he does, you and I are in deep trouble. See, the Bible defines good differently than you and I do. We believe good is anything of having more good things than bad things. It's like a scale. Put it on the scale. If the good outweigh the bad, then we're good. We made it. God has to take us. He has to usher usher us in, into safety, into his eternal heaven. He's got to. That's what people are betting on. And Jesus says, you are in trouble if you are basing all of this on your pride and your own human merit. Because my goodness is different than how you define it. My goodness is perfection. Perfection. You must be perfect in every way to be able to be accepted by me. And so here's what I would tell people oftentimes. I would I'd let them know that you have a much better chance getting what you need from God by admitting that you are completely unworthy than insisting that you are. And that's the way that salvation works. Salvation works and we see it in the heart of people. And this is what always encourages me. When I see a young person or adult and they are completely broken over their sin. I'm not talking about this idea going, yeah, man, I probably need to get into heaven. I need some life insurance. I need something. And they sit there and go, "Uh, yeah, I just need to make sure I'm good for there. And then they supposedly come to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not real confident that it took. But where I am as when an individual is completely broken over their sin and they come to the sense of unworthiness, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. And so what we're going to find is that this is where this man comes. Solution. Two problems. Death. Pride. Here's the solution. Verse 6. And Jesus, Jesus with them, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. <laughs> Completely different stance, isn't it? I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. There, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now it's hard to understand exactly how the word came back to Jesus at this point. How does Jesus, or, excuse me, back to the centurion. How does the centurion know that Jesus is on his way? Some suggest he may have seen him down the road, Others suggest, and I think that this might be fitting, is that what had actually happened is this group of elders that ended up going, Jewish elders that ended up talking with Jesus and convinced him to be able to come, one of them probably goes back early ahead of them. This would have been customary during the day to let him know that guests are arriving and for him to be able to prepare. But however the case that he finds out, here's what he does. He sends a servant back to him. And he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I I am not worthy to have you come underneath my roof. Therefore, I did not presume for you to be able to come to me. Now, why does he stop Jesus from coming? Well, it could be, as we talked about last week, his house was a mess, and he couldn't get his kids to clean it up in time, and it was going to be embarrassing if Christ came over unannounced. Or this could be a failure in faith could very well be him sitting there going, you know what, this guy's about to die. And I think Jesus, if he was a little healthier, Jesus might be able to help him. But right now he's about to die. It's gonna be a waste of Jesus even to be able to come. And the answer is neither one of those because this isn't a picture of a crisis of faith. This is a picture of saving faith. What is ultimately defined as a humble faith. What he does is, and I wonder if this is how it happened, and I don't know, but I wonder if when that man came back and gave a message to him, to this centurion, that he told him, hey, we met them. This is what those elders said about you. And what they said is you are a worthy man. And now Jesus is gonna come to the house. And I wonder if he was horrified by that. And I wonder if he's like, you've gotta go right away. You go right now and tell him that I am not worthy for him to come. I am I am not asking for him to help based on some kind of human merit where I think I'm deserving for him to bring life to the servant. He goes because I am unworthy, I am unworthy to go to him. That's why I sent a messenger to him. I'm unworthy for him even to come to the house. You see the difference between there? And this is showing this incredible faith of this man, I am not worthy. And the idea there is, is the humility is not only found in the fact that he sees his own depravity and he sees his own deficiencies, but that he sees the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's where true humility is. It's not about me going, I'm a terrible, I'm an awful person. You only know that in light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so when he sees Jesus, he asks him not to come. And then we see it's not only humility, we also see that it's this great faith. Notice this great faith. But say the word and let your servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to a servant, do this, and he does it. Therefore, I did not presume to you, to, to, for you to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This Roman official, he understood how authority worked. He knew that he was under authority, authority over over Rome, under Rome. He was in authority under Caesar. He understood that. And he understood by that authority, now it has given him authority to tell others what they need to do. And so as as a Roman centurion, he would have been over approximately 100 men. And he just says, he goes, I tell a guy to go and do this, he does it. I tell somebody to come and they immediately come. He goes, I tell them to do something, they immediately do. I know all about authority. And what he's in essence saying is, I recognize you as having ultimate authority. That you yourself are under authority. Somehow he's putting this together. This is amazing stuff. This man is not Jewish. He wasn't within that covenant community, and yet... The Holy Spirit. This the only way is somehow revealing to this God that Jesus is under God, that He is the Son of God, and He has a much greater authority. This authority is not just over men. This authority is over sickness and death itself. And who has the power over life and death but only one God? And So He comes to Him and He recognizes this, and and, and He says, "I just know. Look, you don't even have to come into my house. You don't have to like bless a hanky. You don't have to." put spit on his forehead. You don't have to put oil on his forehead. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to come. Just from a distance, just say the word and my servant is going to be healed because you have the authority to give life and the life is in your word. You see this? And so what, do you, what does he do? Well, Jesus is amazed. Verse 9. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's not, he's not rebuking, I think, his listeners. I think he's just saying, hey, yeah, you have faith, but I've not seen faith like this. You guys seem to need to see stuff. You, you need to be there. This man was not there. He didn't, he's never heard my voice before. He's never heard me teach in person. He's never seen me uh, uh, heal the sick, and yet he believes simply by hearing of me and hearing of the story of me. You know, there's only two times in all the word of God that we actually read that, that Jesus was amazed, and both have to do in context of faith. Faith. One was in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, where the people from his own hometown of Nazareth says that they didn't believe and Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And now, here's the, just the opposite. He's amazed, but not by unbelief, but the belief of this man. And the Bible says that when the servants ended up going home to the house, this man, the servant that was sick, was serving once again. He was well. We don't know if Jesus said something. We don't know what happened, but we do know that God responded to that faith and brought life To that servant. You know, I was sitting back and I was thinking to myself, you know, what kind of applications can we draw from this? Can we pull from this? I think the first is the reality is one day we are all going to die. And we don't know when it's coming. and and maybe you're here today, maybe this has given you post-traumatic stress disorder because you remember growing up into some church one time where it was hellfire and brimstone, and my approach is not to come across to you that way, but at least with the same urgency and the same reality that any moment we can die. Here's the other idea, is are we living in light of that reality? How many of you would look over the last week and said, hey guys, today is a day that you meet your maker how'd you do this last week? Is that the week that, is that how you wanted to spend the week knowing that you were about to meet your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The majority of us would probably say, no. A lot of things my mind has been on that have no eternal consequence. A lot of things that I complained about this last week that really aren't the biggest problem that the world is ultimately facing. I've been embittered, I've been angry, I've been afraid, And the truth of the matter is we've lost sight that we don't have all the time in the world to work this out. We have to live right now in light of the fact that our lives can be cut short at any moment. You know, we've we've experienced some deaths here at Mercy Hill. One of those deaths has been with Hugo. Many of you know Hugo, right? If you don't know him personally, you probably heard of Hugo during the time. He was diagnosed some time ago with cancer and uh, really had a big big battle with it. About two weeks ago, he passed away. I want to share a letter that uh, that, uh, Noah Mee has actually written. Really, this is a thank you letter to all of you and to so many other more that supported them. But I want you to hear this letter in close. It said, dear friends and family and church family, he said, this has been a very long journey to say the least. Hugo's life deserves to be celebrated to the fullest God granted us almost 19 months of time with him, even though he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. This is unheard of in the medical field. Only the power of God, full in mercy, kindness, and love, could grant the extended life that he was given. He has been faithful. Hugo and I met late in our lives, both of us broken and unsure of the future. We were both grateful to God for bringing us together. We complimented each other so well. In almost 12 years that we were married, I I can recall Hugo being upset only twice. This is not my wife writing this letter. (laughs) Uh. But even in those times, he would come and ask forgiveness even if that argument was not his fault. He was so gentle and loved his family sacrificially. Hugo would begin and end his day spending time with Jesus. Only at the end of the day, due to severe weaknesses and pain, was he able to not do so. Hugo went to seminary while he was taking chemo treatments. Oh, he loved learning, knowing, and sharing Jesus. It was wonderful to know Hugo in the way that he had a unique blessing. He knew that time was short and he was faithful to live inside of it. Anytime that you would ask Hugo, how are you doing? He would sit there and go, I'm fine. How are you doing? And he would mean it. Anytime that you would go to encourage him at his home, he would be an encouragement to you. But it wasn't stuff and fluff. It was always about Christ, centered around the reality of who Jesus is and our need to know him all the more. Well, it's easy to be able to see that he would live his life in light of the reality of death. But I don't want you to miss his wife. I don't want you to miss Noah Here's what she says, I ask myself, why does God take home a person that preached, shared, and lived the Christian life, no per, not, not perfect, because no one is perfect, why? Why a person that expanded God's kingdom here on earth? This is what a friend of mine years ago couldn't get over, that God wouldn't heal his friend, couldn't get over, it, and he walked away from the faith. Here's Naomi's response, but that's what faith is all about trusting God when you don't understand his ways or his plans. This I do know, he is God and I am not. He sees the whole picture from the beginning to the end and loves Hugo and loves us with an everlasting love. God has been a good, good father. In due time, as it is written in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a time to mourn and a time to dance This is our season of mourning, but a season of dancing will come too. In the loving name of every family member, we want to say thank you. Thank you for loving Hugo and loving us. The reason I wanted to read that to you is, yes, to, to show you what it looked like to live underneath that. But you see it not only in Hugo, but you see it in his wife, Noamie. You see that she understands what it is, is understanding that death is going to come, but there is one who has solved the problem of death and our pride, and it's Jesus Christ. Because the perfection that you and I could not meet, he met for us and he was a willing substitute to die on that cross for all who would repent and believe and place their faith in that completed work, they too would be born again and have eternal life. So here's what we're gonna ask. It's what we ask in everything. Look, I understand that none of you are gonna leave here and on Facebook, go, Pastor, thanks for the death sermon. You're not going to do that. But what I would hope you do is to say, thank you, Jesus, for the message about life and the message about grace that we have only in Jesus Christ. And so it's always this. Do you know? You don't, you're, you're playing with Christ. You're playing with eternity. Why would you play with that? If you knew it was your last, is this the way you live your life? Or would you take your life with Christ more seriously than what you are? You don't know when it's coming. Let us live in light of that reality. Let us come to faith in Jesus Christ or let the rest of us begin to live that life right now. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we love you, and we glorify you. You are a good and awesome and wonderful God. And God, I have to trust you that because we preach expositional sermons that this is the message we need to hear. may not have been what we wanted. may not have been even when I it would have been my ideal to be able to preach. But at the same time, we're not God, and you love us enough to be able to bring these uncomfortable ideas and thoughts that we want to remove from our mind, and you force it back into our mind so that we'll do business with you because you love us so much. God, may we do business with this. God, if there be anyone here who does not you, let them repent and believe, gift them the gift of salvation and belief. We love you in your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. I'll be down here. I would love to talk with you, pray with you, whatever your need is. Let's respond.